This is the Hymn Publications Podcast. I'm Chad Harrington. This is the second post that we're making in a mini-series on spiritual formation. It's part of an eight-week class at Harpeth Christian Church that I'm teaching. Today we cover the importance of starting with your primary desire in life. I explain that, and then we get into the greatest barriers in your spiritual formation journey, the goals that you would name each of those. And then we look at how spiritual formation works in terms of God's part, our part, and their part, which is to say other people's role. Just a note, if you want class notes, downloads, and the other materials that we're using for this course, you can go to himpublications.com about, and you'll find our contact information there. That's himpublications.com about. Good morning. This is Spiritual Formation Class 2, and we are live at Harpeth Christian Church. So welcome to everyone online, those in person, way to go. We made it another day. We've got coffee, yogurt, snacks, and everything. That's what we've got here. I mean, there's a continental breakfast for those in person. Um, I wanted to share with you all some of the uh, data from the spiritual formation inventory. So this is kind of fun. You guys all have this. I'm just going to hit on a few things. So in other words, uh, my wife and I compiled the data and 39 out of 60 people took it. And I just wanted to share some of the highlights so you know who else is in the class and where people are at um, in terms of how you're doing overall in terms of spiritual formation. 90% of us said we're between a four to an eight. So I'd say that's decent. Good bell curve there. Um, and the most number of people um, said that they were at about a six, and that was 31% of us say, hey, we're doing a little better than bad, I guess. <laughs> we're, we're, we're making some progress. 25% um, of the class f um, fasts once a week, and the rest rarely or never fast. So these are just kind of random highlights that we thought were interesting. 60% um, of us rarely or never confess our sin to one another. Come on, people. Let's do this. There's freedom in Christ. 8% um, of us are not a member of a church, so that's interesting. Um, it's actually pretty low, though, too. And then I, you can look at this later. I think this is really interesting. We ranked the disciplines people are most interested in from number 1 to 15, and then the top five that people are experienced at. So you can look at that on your own time. I think that's really interesting. Um, wanted to remind people who are interested in the ordination process, if you want to take this, I guess, quote for credit, um, credit in heaven, that is, so that God actually looks on you and says 100%. Then No, just credit with the church where you can pursue ordination one day, or if you're just interested in that and you want to take this class, um, so that you can build toward potential ministry one day or eldership. Just let me know. Send me an email. Um, shoot me a message. Um, and that just helps me to track with you from the beginning. So go ahead and let me know this week. And the last thing is I just wanted to remind us of our main goal here, that, that Christ be formed in us together over the long-haul journey of discipleship. This is not an individualistic journey. So we'll talk about that toward the end today. But I just wanted to remind us of the goal that Christ be formed in us. Not that you become your best self now. You will become your best self, but it's Christ in you that's, you know, the hope of glory. And that's what we want to be formed in us. 
So let's transition to talk about your spiritual formation plan, because um, I think that this is one of the most exciting parts of what we're doing over the next few months. And so I wanted to just ask, how's your rule of life going? And what questions do you have? And I'm going to grab my sheet here. So if you, if you weren't here last week, you can get the syllabus online and this as well. We've got extra copies up here. The first thing we wanted to do was for you to craft your rule of life. So it will become a bound book. Each week I'm going to hand you like that part of what we're covering. And then by the end of it, you'll have like a folder. I see one person actually has a folder, which is great. Um, they, they do all go together to form a cohesive plan. So how did the rule of life go for you? Raise your hand if you attempted it. Great. Raise your hand if you completed your first draft of any amount. Okay. About half online. Raise your hand. <laughs> um, how did it go? What questions do you have? Okay. That's a good question. So Jim asked, is this goal setting? or what was the other or putting words and definitions towards things that he wants to be moving toward the answer is, is yes um, but more the latter so the rule of life is is not is not the short-term plan like hey i want to do this this year or i'd like to accomplish this in the next month this is who do you want to be in your life in general what kind of person do you want to be is what you're answering through this um, it's not yearly goals. This is literally your rule of life. It's how you want to measure your, the success of your life in one sense. Not that it's like tasks. It's more qualitative. Um, it, it can include quantitative numbers and, you know, I want to do this X number of times per week. But um, let me... Let me share with you a little bit more from my rule of life, because I think that that might be helpful for you to think through yours. So um, for mind, I put memorizing the word on a weekly basis. Now, whether I'm measuring up to my own, and this is what you created, no one else is doing this for you. Whether I do that or not is, this is who I want, the kind of person I want to be. Uh, for body, the temple of, of my life for God. I want to sleep eight hours a night. And then I put listening to the Lord for exceptions the odd time, because I know that Jesus stayed up all night sometimes. And so did Paul. And so I'm like, there's times where you stay up, but generally I want to be the kind of person who sleeps eight hours a night. It's like some people might be nine. Some people might be seven. You don't even have to talk about sleep on your rural life, but I, I put that on paper because that's the kind of person I want to be. Um, I want to regularly fast. I want to retreat multiple times a year, like to an actual retreat center. I want to work out three times a week, and I want to go regularly to the dentist and the doctor, which is funny. It's like, well, when you're younger, it's like you don't really need to do that necessarily. But I want to be the kind of person who doesn't get cavities. It's like I actually put that on here, but that's just me. What is it for you? For social um, I want to regularly confess and repent without letting time go on in, in sin. I want to seek what I call 360-degree church for regular fellowship. 
I want to be with people who are further and older, maybe younger and not um, at the same place in my journey, but also people who are on the same, you know, playing field where we're partners. I wrote that down because I want to seek these things. This one's unique to me. To cultivate long-term, mutually, spiritually encouraging relationships. That one's actually kind of hard. Does that help? Yes. Okay. What else? What other question do you have? Matt? Okay. So if, just so I can say that back to the people online. As you went through the process, you pray and you sort of jot down the things you're thinking about as you pray, you noticed that a lot of it was not to do things and not so much to do things. Thank you for sharing that. I, th I think that a lot of us can empathize with saying, I didn't realize that that's what I was thinking. So um, did, did that make you want to add more to it? That's awesome. So Christy was saying that she, it makes her want to add the positive things of what she wants to be. And I think that that's a huge breakthrough. Thanks for sharing that with us. So um, any more questions on the rule of life at this point? Okay, so here's the cool thing. This week, there's a soft pitch of what you have to do. Have to do. You don't have to do any of this. Um, of the assignment for this week, it's going to be a little simpler. So that'll give you a chance to really sure this up to, and to do the rule of life. This is the most important assignment that, that you'll get in the whole class is to, and if you draft it now, it'll make it better when you redraft it. This is not your only draft. So don't worry too much about, don't overanalyze it. Go ahead and just jot it down. It may be not what you end up wanting at all, but start like Christy was saying, it's like, I did this and it's not what I want it to be, but at least you know where you're at so you can move forward. So, all right guys, you can do it. It's really going to be a valuable tool and it should be for the rest of your life is the goal. So invest that time into it. So I just wanted to cover that here at the beginning. Um, today we are going to essentially talk about the greatest barriers to spiritual formation. And we're going to go deeper into how it works. And I think that that, that process is important um, because it's like we're all on a journey, right? And if we don't know what we're up against, then it's going to be harder to make it through. So to set all that up, and this gets into what we're going to talk about this coming week, what you're going to do during the week, I want to talk about your greatest desire. So we're going to cover it like this. We're going to talk about what's your greatest desire right now. Then we'll move into generally what are the barriers to spiritual formation that people experience both on the surface level and on the deep level. And then we'll talk about how it works. In other words, problem solution kind of thing. And by next week, we're actually gonna hit the ground with the first disciplines that we're gonna talk about. So I think these first two weeks are the kind of material, contain the kind of material that you're gonna to wanna to really, you might even go back and listen to it. We have a podcast of this, by the way, so you can do the audio. It's the kind of thing that goes really deep. We're gonna cover a lot of content and ground, but I think it's really important to talk about a biblical theology for spiritual formation. Where's your heart at? How are you, what do you want? What are your personal barriers? Because these are the things that are, you're gonna run up to, into, as you make progress. And so let's talk about, basically let's get our plan, like let's figure out how we're gonna navigate things so that when we get into the details, we don't get bogged down by that specific detail because 
because we're running up into things we hadn't thought of in general. Does that make sense? So the first thing I want to do is talk about your greatest desire. So this is kind of exciting for me because um, it was so liberating for me when I realized that what I want matters. Okay, so let me explain what I mean. I'm using the framework of story for spiritual formation. So I've been a student of story for the last probably three or four years intentionally, and it has really been helpful. Donald Miller simply defines story as a character who wants something and overcomes barriers to get it. So you're the character in what, you know, for this story, for your story. And you've got to want something. There's no good story if there's no desire. And, and then they overcome barriers to get it. If you look at like what's most of the time in any movie or plot, it's the barriers in overcoming them. But the thing that makes it worth it is the desire that motivates along the way. And so let me just ask you, what do you want? There's this funny video online. Uh, it's from a movie. I don't even know what the movie is, but the guy's like, what do you want? And the girl says, it's not that simple. And he's like, what do you want? <laughs> it really is kind of complicated to just say what you want. Um, but let me make this point that I think it matters to God. It's not just a cool pop psychology question to ask. In John chapter 1, we find Jesus walking close to the disciples of John the Baptist. And all of a sudden he finds trailing him these two awkward guys. At least it seems awkward in the narrative. Because Jesus turns around and he's like, <laughs> like what are you doing? So they're following Jesus like this, right? Literally just like following the guy. Jesus turns around and he says this, what do you want? Now, he could have said it in multiple ways. Like, what do you want? Like, <laughs> come on, guys, what do you want? But the context seems to show that he wanted to know literally what they wanted by following him. And I love their answer. They're like, uh, where are you staying at, man? <laughs> and he's like, come and you'll see. But notice that the question is really engaging. He didn't first say, come and follow me to these guys. He said, what do you want? I think that's really engaging. What do you want in life right now? The Lord might be asking you, or at least I'm asking you. Perhaps you just want a new job or you want a break or you want deeper friendships with people. You know, I'm not asking necessarily what do you want spiritually? I think too often we separate what we want in life from spiritual desires, but I think sometimes they're actually more integrated than we would at first blush think. So I literally am asking, what do you want? Not what are you supposed to want? Not what is your spiritual self wanting? Literally, plain and simple, honestly, what do you actually want in life right now? Let's start there on your spiritual journey. It might be difficult for you to actually answer this. I think a lot of us don't make space in our life for what we want because we've got work to get done and there's things to do. No one cares what I want. Can't you see how the world works? Our desires don't matter because it's about what God wants for me, not what I want. These are the kinds of things that make it challenging to answer this question. But I would argue 
that although he doesn't always give us what we want, I think because he loves us, <laughs> right? He wants to know what we want because he's a good father. I ask Emma, my daughter, who's only two all the time, what do you want? It's not because she's going to get it every time. It's because I want to know what she's trying to tell me without many English words. <laughs> We're learning to speak spiritually. One of those muscles is naming what you want. Because how are you going to move forward if you're not moving forward from the place of actual desire? We can't fabricate spiritual formation and progress. It comes from our authentic self. And so I talk about and basically ask you to name your primary desire. Now, this is even different than asking, what do you want? Because you could say, well, I want this, 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 and that. And, and it's like, okay, okay. So I'm asking literally, what's your primary desire right now in life? So you, this week, you're going to answer that question. In fact, there's a sheet that helps you answer that question. It'll remind you of some of these important things I just said and give you a little bit of a process on how to do it. Um, so that is, you only have two assignments this week. That's number one. The next one is very similar. It's, it's short and simple. So I say primary desire because I think that that is what makes good stories. If you want a hundred things, boring, you're not going to get them and you're not going to be able to make progress on all 100 at the same time. You get one. How do I know that? Because of the Jungle Book. Think about the story of the Jungle Book as Disney retells it and compiles Rudyard Kipling's, you know, slowly released newspaper articles. They compiled it into this really great narrative that we all love from 1967. And then it was re-released in 2016 by Disney and it was amazing. So it sort of reignited this um, excitement about story in me when I watched it. Really well done, not just in terms of cinematography, but also their storytelling was incredible. By the way, Rudyard Kipling, who wrote these stories, the Jungle Books originally, he was a believer. So that's kind of cool. Everyone in the Jungle Book wants one thing. Shere Khan, what does he want? To kill Mowgli. Bagheera, he wants to protect Mowgli. Baloo wants honey. Literally, that's all he wants. He's not focused on Mowgli, really. He just wants the honey. Mowgli, come help me get the honey, you know? What does Mowgli want? You know what's kind of cool? When you start seeing this in movies, almost always, the character will say exactly what they want at some point. And that's true in this story. He says, all I've ever wanted my whole life is to be a wolf, for others to see me as an equal. He wanted community to be a part of the pack. What do you want? What's the one thing that you long for that's driving your narrative? God can reform your desires and change them, but let's start with where you're at. You could think of it like this. Here's you. Here's God. Let's say your desire is not precisely on target with 
the center of God's heart. It's more like this. Or it's uh, maybe like that. So you, you want things, they're kind of in the direction, but not necessarily, that's okay. God can redirect our desires. But, you know, perhaps your desire is more in alignment with what God wants than you might at first suppose. And the goal is that we would move towards God. Um, so there's a, there's a fun word to talk about this. It's called henosis. It's becoming one with God. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But as we journey toward God, it's like, just start moving. Let's say you're, you're heading maybe even far off of the page. At least you'll know where you're at. And then you can say, God, change my heart. All I want is this. And you know it's not what God wants. For That's okay. Put it down. You can, you can change it later. So here's how to do it. List out all the things you want right now. You can do that on this sheet that, um, that you've got on your table. List them all out this week. And then pick one. Pray about it. Think about it. Again, you can always change it later. This is a good exercise. All right, now let's talk about barriers to spiritual formation. Once we know what we want, the next question, because we're in a story, right? The next question is, what barriers are you up against? This assumes that God will form our desires because he's forming us. But what are you going to run up against as you pursue God with your desire? And so we're going to talk about, and this is your second assignment for the week, what are your greatest barriers to seeking God? Okay. So I've found that when I ask people this question, what's your greatest barrier in encountering God? People will usually give me a surface level answer because that's not nearly as vulnerable or as, you know, requiring as much thought, right? Well, I'm too busy, you know. I just need to find the time. You know, the truth is, I don't really know where to start right now. So I'm just not going to do it, right? It's like, those are really practical, real barriers. You know, I'd, truth is, I don't really understand the Bible. So I just kind of avoid it. Um, I don't really want to pray because what am, how am I supposed to pray? You know, those are really like practical barriers. So I want you to list out this week all the barriers you think through. And then um, I want you to identify your greatest surface level barrier. Because I think it's actually important to, to name those practical things, those more like easy to identify things. But then I want you to go deeper, and I'm going to help you do that today. I want you to go deeper and actually identify kind of more of the heart level, what's going on between you and the Lord. And so... Um, those deeper barriers do require more thought to get to because it's not immediately obvious to us necessarily. You know, there are issues of the heart like sin and shame and guilt. 
but also maybe the way we view God. Like, how do we know God? Maybe we don't like him because we think that he's a curmudgeon. That's a barrier. You're not going to really want to be intimate with someone who's against you. And if that's where you're at, that, like if that's actually a barrier for you, let's, let's go there. Let's talk about it. So uh, the, the way to, to identify your barriers, number one, be willing to go deep. Digging deep is the class. You signed up for it. Be willing to go deep, list out the barriers, and then pick a surface level and a deep barrier. That is your second assignment for this week. So my goal during this class session is to help you identify those by naming some of the common ones that I know of. There's going to be many more, but these are the ones that I thought would be the most helpful to talk through. So let's talk about surface level barriers first. And I just want to ask the question, what are the surface level barriers that you can think of that are common to people? Kids. Absolutely. She says with no kids around her. She, you're so happy right now. I love that. Jim? Uh, media, distractions. media distractions. What else? This is good. Just popcorn. Not making a priority. Not making it a priority. Like logistical. Yeah. Finding the time. What else? I thought of forgetfulness. There's one. What else? Discipline. I would consider that more of a surface level, you know, because it's kind of practical, right? Or tangible, like, how do I do this? Okay, what else? I thought of sometimes we don't have a clear goal. Like, what am I actually doing here? You know? What else? Distractions being on phones, yes, yeah. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Blame other people. Yeah, like um, like who? Oh, I'm not getting what I want because of you. You're always doing this and that. Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah. And that sort of gets us to some deeper things, but I think on the surface, it's like blaming is a, would be a surface level. Yeah, that's good. Uh, what about deeper barriers? What are some of the ones that you can think of? And I'll kind of interact with you about it. I might push back or, you know, I might help guide the conversation, but um, yeah, what are some ones that you can think of? Reasons kind of on that deeper heart level that people would avoid pursuing God. Would somebody like feeling worthless or like, not feeling worthy yes yeah that's huge absolutely in fact yesterday we got into a little bit of that I don't know if this is exactly what you mean but I made a mistake at work yesterday like a like a logistical mistake with a client and I felt so terrible about myself in that moment it was one of those moments like no like it's like I did it it was no one else's fault, and it really is not a good situation for, for my client. And I felt so bad. Like, my heart was, I physically was, like, overwhelmed with this sense of immediate guilt and even a little shame. And so you're talking about worthiness, and it's like, 
I felt like I wanted to just run and hide, but I couldn't escape the fact of that I hadn't hit the right buttons on a Zoom meeting and it didn't record the webinar. And I was like, no. That's, I didn't want to talk to the guy. I didn't want to tell him, I'm, look, I just totally fumbled and you're going to have to redo it. I was so ashamed of what I had done, but it was like, it was, I don't think it was sin. It was just, I made a mistake. I didn't hit the buttons correctly. Right. I think, you know, feeling worthy. That's a great one that can get into shame, uh, sin and guilt ongoing sin that you're currently in is such a burden. past failures yeah not even necessarily just sin but that but then also like hey i've tried to read the bible i've tried to pray i've tried to you know worship with my family but they laughed at me or you know it's like yeah past failures that's thank you for saying that i think that that is deep because those are wounds sometimes or um or kind of like a, a marred picture of what it looks like that stays with you yeah what else Okay. Um, if you on Facebook. Didn't have a good father growing up. That's probably you know, Didn't have a good father. What was the rest of that? That's the rest. Okay. Another one, anger with God. Yeah, that can be really deep. Fear of change. That last one, Karen Jackson said, fear the change that God's going to ask. Oh, fear of change. Like, yeah. Good. Fear of change, yeah. For people like me, that's not an issue because I love change. But I'll tell you what, I don't love all change. And so I can empathize with that. It's like, what's God going to ask me to do? What kind of, you lose a little control, right? When you allow God to come into maybe some closed off rooms in your heart. That's really legitimate. Well, let me, let me kind of pick the ball up from there and, and kind of go into some of the ones that I've thought about before this class. I think that's a really great start. And if you want, you can already go ahead and start jotting some of these down on that sheet called Identifying Your Greatest Barriers. If you think, hey, I struggle with that, go ahead and write it down. Get your list started. And then you can narrow it down to your single greatest surface and deep barrier. Um, I want to go a little bit um, more theological to start, and then we'll get into the personal stuff. Because I think theology is not separate from our hearts. In fact, it's very much like this, what we believe about God impacts how we think about God. So I think that a lot of our barriers actually do go back to what we believe on a deep level. We may not know that that's what we believe, but as I go through these, maybe you'll identify, oh, that is, that is what I think. That's a barrier. Let's talk about that. One of those is a forgiveness-only gospel. I think a vast I want to say a vast majority, I would say a lot of North American Christians have believed a false gospel, which includes forgiveness only. Here's what it kind of sounds like. Jesus died for your sins, believe in him, and you'll be forgiven and go to heaven one day. If that's the only gospel you believe, you have not received the full gospel absolutely does Jesus forgive us. Absolutely do we go to heaven one day. Absolutely did he die. 
but that neglects bigger parts of the gospel, which impact how we live today. For example, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is enthroned. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for spiritual formation? If the gospel you believe is limited to only, the only really good part about it is that we're forgiven, then you might be what Dallas Willard calls a vampire Christian. You just want the blood. It's like, I can't believe he said that. But you'll remember it. If all you want is forgiveness from God, he has so much more to give you. And that might be a reason that you're struggling to make progress. Another gospel problem is that you might have a Gnostic gospel. This comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So your gospel is primarily that it's what you think and believe in your head separated from the rest of life that saves you and that connects you with God. In other words, it's just all about knowledge. Now, at first you might be like, well, that's not me. You know, I have a relationship with God. It's like, but do you have just a purely like heady relationship with God? Or is it heartfelt? Does it include what you do with your body? It can't go back to what you believe about the gospel. This is an actual heresy. Gnosticism goes back to the, to the early 3rd century, late 2nd century is where it was really dominant. Seeds of it were there in the New Testament era. But this is a legitimate heresy um, where you believe that Jesus came in the body. Uh, you believe that Jesus... Um, didn't necessarily come in the body, is what I'm saying. He was a wise teacher, but um, it's connected with, with other kind of tangents, but it, he didn't necessarily die on the cross and raised from the dead. He kind of fainted and then was resuscitated later. I think a great proponent of the Gnostic gospel is Jordan Peterson. And that might sound abrasive, but he actually articulates a gospel specifically about Jesus in his book, 12 Rules for Life. And it's very attractive when you read it because he talks about metaphorical resurrection and life that comes from knowing about God. And he's a really heady guy. Love Jordan Peterson as a psychologist. He is promoting what I would call the Gnostic gospel. And a really good way to identify if you believe these kinds of things and by the way, it doesn't sound like he believes that Jesus actually died and rose from the dead. Probably the died part, but I don't think Jordan Peterson believes in a bodily resurrection. So that's the essence of a Gnostic gospel. Is they don't believe in a physical resurrection from someone who was um, dead. So a good way to identify if you struggle with this in your heart and in your life is if you separate your spiritual journey from the physical things in your life. Maybe you neglect your body and say, well, I need to spend more time in prayer. It doesn't matter if I work out or eat well. It might go back to a deeper belief about the essence of God's purpose for us. Because Jesus did come in the body. God physically raised him from the dead. And he will give us new bodies one day. Not because these bodies are terrible and we should neglect them. But because God cares about the physical world. That's why he created it could have made us just like these spirits floating on clouds and oh now I know about Jesus I believe that I'll go this way it's like no we are embodied creatures for a reason and when God says love me with all your heart 
and with all your nefesh, with all your life, including your body, he means it. When Jesus says, you know, love me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your life, and with all your mind and strength. Actually, by the way, he doesn't say strength in Matthew 20, uh, 22. I found that interesting. But if he says the mind part, right, which we talked about last week, that, which is included in, in the Hebrew concept of heart. He wants all of us. It's the full gospel for our entire life. So think about what do I actually believe? Do I believe that the kingdom of God matters? We'll get a little bit more into that. You might also have a skewed view of sovereignty, where God does things to you. He's the one who does all the work, and you just kind of, you don't do anything in the relationship. You just receive it. You might actually believe that sovereign, the sovereignty of God means that you don't do anything, which sounds kind of appealing, but it's really weird, and it doesn't work, and it's not true. That view of sovereignty is not the God of the Bible. Okay, and it's, there's views like that that are promoted widely. If you have questions about that, let's talk. That's a complicated kind of can of worms to open up, but I need to say it because it's a real barrier. If you believe God is the only active person in the relationship where he, you just pray maybe and then he does it and then you wait, that's a problem. That's a big barrier, and I want to help you work through that. You might be afraid of legalism. You've rejected good works because you think that that's legalism. You've also rejected the efforts to please God because you think, well, I'm not supp supposed to please God. Jesus did that for me. Those are barriers because those are also false presuppositions. We'll get into that. You might also not believe it's possible for God to change you. Yeah, he can do that with Martin Luther. He can do that with Bobby Harrington. He can do that. But me? No, you can't teach this old dog new tricks. Come on. On a deep level, you might not believe it's possible because of how far you've gone and the things you've done and how long it's been since you've made progress. But in Christ, as we'll get into there is power, even for you, and even for me. I love the fact that last night I got an email from the guy that I messed up his webinar. He's a believer, and I was so afraid. I was like, I called him, and he didn't answer my calls two times yesterday. He emailed me. He said, here's the new file. His, their tagline is relax. Like, that's in their tag. So he said, I bet you're just beside yourself, but he said, relax. It's okay. How much more is God like that with us? Hey, I know you think that you went too far and you screwed it up too much, but I love you. It's okay. There's more personal barriers that come too. I think sin in our lives right now is probably the greatest barrier. Sin in the past is one thing, but if you're actively engaged in sin and you're caught in it, it's like get help, get out of it, because it's going to be really hard for you to make spiritual progress when you're actively, willfully sinning. I think it's a really dangerous place to be. Um, and I know that when I've been caught in sin in my life, it's terrible. It's such a burden. And so I just encourage you, get out of it as soon as you can. And if you need help, ask for it today. 
Um, guilt and shame. Guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about who you are. These are significant barriers. Um, I'm not going to get into exactly all what those mean, but I want you to be able to name them. You might be selfish when you come to God. You view God as a vending machine. It's like you're, you approach the spiritual disciplines like, you know, <laughs> um, like going to Vegas, going to get a slot machine. I put insert coin here, output more here. It's like, but you don't see it as a relationship. You just kind of want stuff from God. I think that that's a pretty big barrier. Um, and so that's more personal. It's not so much uh, a general like theological thing. Um, I, I think another one that's worth mentioning is that you don't believe that personality can change. Like, you're like, well, that's not my personality to be disciplined. It's like, hold on, though. Isn't one of the fruits of the Spirit self-control? So are you going to exclude God's formation in your life because of your Enneagram? Like, <laughs> because your Myers-Briggs doesn't quite comport with the biblical text that say, no, God can actually change your heart. What do you think your personality is? It's part of your heart's a huge part of your personality. And if you believe that personality is f- permanently fixed from birth and never changes, I'm sorry, you believe some, some weird pop psychology, and it might be a significant barrier for you to change if you continually say, that's not my personality. Now, let me say, again, back to the desire thing. I think your personality really matters. In fact, if, if you believe that your personality can't change, I might be a bigger proponent of your actual personhood and personality than, than the people that you've listened to. Because I believe that Christ in us enlivens our real personality. And maybe the things that you've thought of as who you are are actually connected to weaknesses and sin and dross that the Lord wants to take away. So I just kind of want to say, maybe just loosen your grips from the personality profiles a little bit. Loosen your grips from the boxes you've put around yourself and just say, here I am, Lord, without necessarily holding on to these categories. And Lord, change me. And don't worry too much about if it's part of your personality or not. You might find that who you are is, is actually even richer than what you thought because it's Christ in you. So just wanted to say that. There's a lot of others, but those should get you started thinking through some of these surface level and deep barriers. Um, so let's move into how it works. If you think about a story, right? There's a character who wants something and they overcome barriers to get it. Well, how do they overcome barriers? There's not just, that's a simple definition, but every good story has a guide and they have a plan. Jesus is our guide and our plan is embedded in scripture. And so I want to sort of unpack how spiritual formation works by talking about the different parts of spiritual formation. So, you know, I mentioned that some people have a skewed view of sovereignty. And by the way, that's a tricky one because that can go deep and it might take some time to unpack, but um, I think it's worth it. So as, as I move forward, I want you to think about, I want you to think about um, God's part, your part, and their part. All right, so I'm going to write it like this. 
God's part. Okay, so it's a relationship, right? I know it's, it's like, duh, Chad, of course it is. But I want to unpack exactly how that works. And their part, because we're in community, is not just, it's not just us and God, it's us and God and others. And so that's sort of the outline of what we're going to be talking about the rest of our time today. And I want to start with God's part, because God's part, I believe in a strong view of sovereignty. And I think God's part is the most significant part, because without it, we are completely helpless, right? And I just want to talk about, you know, last week we mentioned the, the anatomy of the person, right? So we talked about at the very core is, you know, is heart. It could also be will and spirit. Those are all connected. And, and then, this is the Greek version of it. Then there's the mind, right? So it's still part of our inner life, but it's kind of a different layer, right? And then we've got our bodies here, and these are all dynamics of who we are as people. Um, we've got the body, and then there's the social environment that we live in. And then bigger than that would be our soul or our life. Okay, And so I want to talk about the very center of this, which is our heart. It's our will. It's our spirit. Okay, And remember how, um, if, you, if you kind of draw a, a darker line around this and around this one, that's, those represent the Hebrew concept. So it's really just two, the inner and the outer life, but, you know, we can think a little bit more deeply about it. So the very core of our heart is our will. Willard talks about this being basically the CEO of who you are. It's the one who calls the shots. And it's deeper than your mind. It, it goes deeper into our spirits, into our hearts. It's called the will. And this is a hugely important thing to understand. Because not only do you have a will, but our Father in heaven and Jesus Christ have a will. So we're formed in the image of God, right? This is a really cool story from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. It says that when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now notice this question, if you are willing... In Greek, the word for will and desire is actually the same. So when he asks the question, if you're willing, he actually means like, do you want to do this? And that's also why I ask the question, what do you want? I want us to go to this deep heart level, the center of our will, which is connected to desire. And Jesus says, it says that Jesus reached out his hand, touched him, and he simply said this, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately he was cured of leprosy. I think this is really interesting because this is a microcosm of how change happens from the heart of God to us. So follow with me. Jesus 
didn't just say like, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm down to do that, you know, <laughs> I'm cool with it. He actually said, I am willing, like I want to do that. I want you to be clean. And so he decided to do it. He said it by activating the words in his mind. And then he reached out his body and touched the man with leprosy. And so the will of Christ actually moves outwards like that into the world, redeeming as he goes. So I want you to think about the heart of God in terms of a strong will and strength, meaning that Jesus' will was so strong that he could will someone to be cleansed of leprosy. Think about that. He literally was simply willing to redeem this man's body. And because his will was so strong, it went through his body into this guy's body. And imagine what happened to the guy's heart. Because we have the same anatomy of person that Jesus had when he lived on this earth. So what happened in this guy's life, because he was in social interaction, kneeling before Jesus, impacted his body. What do you think he thought about that? What do you think his heart felt in that moment when Jesus cleansed him of leprosy? That's called transformation. And that's a small story of how God changes our lives. It comes from the strong will of God into our life. So when we talk about, you know, we want our kids to have a strong will, it's like, yeah, a strong will submitted to the Father. A strong will is a very good thing. In fact, I would say it's a very important thing because that's the nature of Jesus. That is super exciting to me because that puts a lot of value in heart level transformation. Does that make sense? Like, we want the heart of God. You know, when we pray, our Father in heaven, your will be done, it's not an insignificant phraseology there. Like, God wills things, and the way that he actualizes them is through us by giving us his heart. And so, that's the second move of God. In his part, he has a strong will. And the second move is he wants to give us that heart. He wants to give us that spirit. And so Ezekiel, and these, these citations are in your notes. Um, in Ezekiel 36, 26, he wants to give us a new heart. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Metaphorically, right? I want to make you soft, not rigid. I want to give you my heart, a new one. That's what is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're born again, John 3 says. So he gives us a new heart, but he also gives us a strong heart. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants to strengthen that inner being inside of you. Interesting. He literally wants us to have a strong heart, a strong will, a strong spirit. Why? So we can handle Jesus. Maybe just a little bit, because he says right after that, the love of God is, I pray that you would know how deep and how wide and how long. And the only way we can handle that just a little bit as humans is to have a strong heart that that's, has the capacity to even grasp some of the love of God, and then it pours out into our lives. That's spiritual formation, because God gives us an, a strong heart, not just a new heart. And then he energizes our hearts. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Catch this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He energizes our will. This, so this is, I'm, I'm trying to give you a biblical theology of transformation. And it says, God works in you to will. It's like, I don't want what I know God wants me to want. God works in us to will according to his good purpose. He's working in it. That's a view of sovereignty that I can get behind. That we work out our salvation because it's God working in us. And it's like, that doesn't make sense, Chad. And it's like, yeah, it's called the gospel. It's good news. And it also doesn't make sense because it's beyond us. But it's real. Because I've experienced it and many, many people have. And it's beautiful. He asks us to will and to act. Spirit, body, inner, outer. God is transforming our whole lives and it's God who energizes it. That's God's part. So what's our part? And by the way, it's really important to emphasize um, these things with our kids and to know them as we disciple our kids and, and people who are young in the faith. God's part's huge, okay? And if they don't have a regenerate heart, any kind of spiritual formation that you sort of attempt to do with them is going to be super limited. They might do surface level stuff, but you have to have a regenerate heart. You have to have a brand new heart to even make real change. Otherwise, it's going to be just spinning your wheels. Okay, so rem remember these things and wait, you know, for someone to be ready and, and but at the same time, pour into them. And then when God gives them that new heart, then you can really start doing work, right? Unless God's done his first grace of saving them <laughs> in cooperation with their will, it's really just going to be hard to do anything. Uh, if you're trying to disciple someone who hasn't really converted, you'll know it because it's like nothing's working. They just don't do the things. They might not be there, okay? So God's part's huge. It's huge for you and me continually, but also when people start out and you're trying to invest in someone, find out. Now, it, you might invest in them so that they can become, you know, converts to Christ. But I'm talking about spiritual formation. If you're trying to really help them move forward, you can't skip this step, okay? All right, let's talk about our part. 
The first thing that we need is humility to receive God's part. <laughs> if you don't like God stepping, you know, let me get a drink here. If you don't like God getting up in your business, changing things around, you don't like his part. <laughs> if you really want to connect with God and grow, you need to have some humility and say, okay, God, you have a place in my life. And so let me kind of go through those bigger barriers and give the solution. We talked about the Gnostic gospel. You know, the solution to a Gnostic gospel, like an information-based gospel only, is an embodied gospel. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is at hand. Not the kingdom of God is waiting for when you die, you know, in the 21st century. No, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when you pray, pray like this, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of God? It's the actual reign of God in the physical universe that includes our hearts and our bodies. Okay? That's the alternative to a Gnostic gospel. It's the gospel of a God who cares about all of the things he created. Not just saving our spirit from when we die. Saving souls. You know, unless you define soul as broadly as Willard does. <laughs> but to save someone's spirit and not care about their body is actually an injustice to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did God raise his body? It's because he cares about our bodies. You know, just read Matthew 25. The forgiveness only gospel is dangerous because, for a similar reason. It's because if you believe that if you believe that God saves forgives you and then you can go to heaven and that's kind of the end of the story, then there's no power for sanctification in that. And what's missing from that gospel is the enthrone several things, but I would say one of the primary ones is the enthronement of Jesus. And Matthew Bates talks about this in his, his book, Gospel Allegiance. And it's like, do you include the enthronement of Jesus in your gospel? Because the Bible does. It's not just that Jesus died and rose from the dead and kind of did some tricks and then, okay, now you can be okay with God. No, he is reigning over all the powers and authorities in the universe. So what does that mean for us? Right, the gospel is, you know, there's more to it, but that's, I think that's what some people are missing. The fact that God, through Jesus, you know, so Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, enthroned above every power and authority. What does that mean for us? It means that ain't nobody got a hold on us. Because guess where we're seated? We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms high above all those authorities. In other words, we have power to become different persons. That's a big deal. And it might be connected to the fact that you believe a gospel that's incomplete. You might believe in a forgiveness-only gospel. Okay, the fear of legalism. This is the one that I think is, is just really important. And I'm, I want to do my best to communicate this because it's, it's a little bit challenging to navigate this well. So... Um, be patient with me and, and maybe even help me do this. I think, 
you know, I think some people are afraid of good works because they've, again, this is connected to the gospel, but they believe that good works are actually bad. If, in other words, if we try and do good things, then we're trying to earn our way to God. Not only so we can go to heaven one day, but like, I don't want to make effort now to connect with God, which is kind of like heaven on earth. Because good works, didn't Jesus do the, the good work and so we don't need to do them? And if we, try and, if we try and do good things, isn't that called legalism? So I just want to liberate you of this fear of legalism. Okay? As best I can. In this way. Good works are mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. And every single time, it's in a good way. Like, they're good to pursue. And if you're afraid of legalism, the real problem is not doing good things. It's doing them without the heart behind them. That's legalism. When Jesus in Matthew 23 says, that to the Pharisees, you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law, like love, justice, and faithfulness. He also said, without neglecting the former, which he was referring to tithing a tenth of their mint, dill, and cumin. They were, the Pharisees were tithing their spices, and you know what Jesus said? Keep doing it, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. He didn't say, so don't worry about the little details. Just worry about the hard stuff. No. God inspired the Apostle Peter to write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The very purpose that, you, that in Christ you were recreated was the, the actual purpose, the reason that, that God has formed you in Christ is for the purpose of doing good works. It's not like, a, yeah, that's okay to do. It's like, no, that's the reason. And it says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. His plan was that we would do these good works that he, that he preordained we would do. In other words, good works as a whole is God's plan. It's not, so please do not be afraid. In fact, I want to release you of that burden. Ask God to bring your heart into him. But he wants you to do the good works that he's prepared for us to do. It's like he's waiting. And so if you're afraid of legalism, I want you to just say, Lord, help me not to be a legalist. <laughs> but I want to do these things, right? God's the only one who can really help us at the heart level. The other thing is, I think some people are afraid to please God. You know, we call it maybe spiritual codependency. You shouldn't really try and please anybody, you know. And codependency, by the way, is a huge and real thing to talk about. But there's a sense in which we want to please people. And that has a place. You know, I know we've got a great CR ministry that helps work out some of these details of what the truth is. But there is a place for pleasing God, and I know that because in 1 Thessalonians 4.1 it says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as you are, as in fact you are living. It's like, well, we don't know if that's 
Sounds good. He instructed him to do it. And then check, catch this. He says, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord to do this more and more. <laughs> when was the last time you told someone, I'm really trying to please God right now. And they said, that's a good thing. No, it's like, no, no, you don't. You shouldn't please God. Jesus did that. I think we've got these false conceptions about things that are just totally lunacy. When scripture is really clear, pleasing God is a good thing. And think about the relationship. Here's the thing. It comes from a place of security and identity in him. And when he says, you are my son or you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. When we try and please him, it's just reciprocating his love back to him. It's not like we got to earn it. We've already got the blessing. We've already got the identity. We've already got the security. And in the midst of this secure, abiding relationship, we want to please God because that's what people do. <laughs> so I just want to liberate you. It's okay to want to please God and to do things to please him. You're not earning anything. Even if you tried, you couldn't. It's called love. And we get to please God because we're delighted to do so. Not because we have to. Because there's, there's this chart and we have to climb it, you know. Isn't that good? Man, that's good. It's like when you do something for your spouse or for your kids or your, you know, your family. It's like, this kind of liberates you. It's like, hey, here's the thing I did for you. And you, you get excited about them receiving it. Like, here's the gift. Here, I made you breakfast. I, I did this. You're not earning their love. You're just excited because you want to make them happy. Right? Um, let's talk about the solution to some of the personal challenges, and then we'll, we'll land the plane here. Um, if you struggle with sin, I'll just say this. Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you struggle with guilt, there's six letters in the New Testament that all start with a new identity. You are holy ones. Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians all start that way. You are holy ones, which is weird because as you continue reading those, you get the idea that they're, maybe they're not so holy, but he still starts that way knowing what he's going to write to the, the Corinthians especially. Shame. In Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, God says in the first non-confrontational conversation he has with Israel since they left Egypt, God says to his people these beautiful words, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before the conquering of Canaan. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Words of identity. Treasured possession? That's what we are to God. When I was in seminary, I met with a Hebrew professor over coffee one day and I said hey you know I was wondering the, in Exodus 19 I said what's the Hebrew there for treasured possession is it like you know is that legit I kind of I was like excited I was like I really I really hope it is because that sounds really cool but I was wondering like you know sometimes they make the translation sound a little bit better than 
than it is. And so I really wanted to know. And he said, that's exactly what it means. He said in ancient societies, like especially around the Egyptian cultures and you know the Mediterranean, he said, a king on his throne kept his most treasured possessions right around his throne. He wanted them close by. And that's the phrase that's used in Exodus 19 of us. We are God's treasured possession. We're the most important to him. So if you deal with shame, God says treasured possession. And if you're like, oh, I'm not there yet. That's not who I am. I'm, these are hard. Then let me just tell you this. Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Paul says, the great apostle says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Our part is largely receiving God's part as we cooperate with him. Take hold of that for which God has taken hold of us in this beautiful relationship. So what does this look like? Here's the crazy part. It looks like making every effort. Chad, that was really cool stuff we just talked about where God bestows identity and all this. It's like, yeah, it is. And out of that richness, we seek with all our heart with all our soul and with all our muchness. Everything you got. Because it comes out of a good place at that point. And so here's what I want to say about that. I want to I give you a really cool theology of effort. And when I realized that this phrase, make every effort, was repeated by Jesus, Paul, Peter, and the author of Hebrews, I thought, okay, I'm on to something here. And so I want to skip down a little bit and, and read those to you because I think this is super important. And you can go and study these in more detail, but I just want to introduce them to you. Jesus says in Luke 13, verses 22 to 24, he says, make every effort. He's going through the villages and the towns throughout Perea during the third year of his ministry and he started preparing for the Passover and someone asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try and enter it and will not be able to. Interesting. Okay. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to mutual edification. In Hebrews 12, 14, the author of Hebrews says, Make every effort to live at peace, to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Make every effort to be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then in 2 Peter verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, actually I'm going to back up to verse 3. He says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Don't you love that language? 
you have everything you need. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, henosis, becoming one with God in that sense, participating in his divine nature, and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. He says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. Make every effort. Chad, that's works righteousness. Not when there's love involved. Not when your heart is enamored with the divine nature that you're participating in is it works righteousness. No, that's just called the good works to which God has taken hold of us for. That's called life to the full. We don't make every effort because we are supposed to. We make every effort because we long to. And it fulfills us like nothing else this world has to offer. That's a theology of making every effort. And as we make effort, at the heart level, it impacts what we do with our minds, our bodies, our relationships, our entire life. It's this going back and forth, you know. Talking about the mind, Dallas Willard on page 34 of our book, Renovation of the Heart, says, There is no choice that does not involve both, the thought, both thought and feeling. On the other hand, what we feel and think, or can and should be, to a very large degree, is a matter of choice in competent adult persons who will be very careful about what they allow their mind to dwell on or what they allow themselves to feel. This is, a cruci- this is crucial to the practical methods of spiritual formation. Your will has the ability in Christ to transform your mind. That's why it's called in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's this active-passive dynamic where God's part and our part kind of do this. Be transformed as your will is formed and God <laughs> forms your mind. I don't even know how to say it because it's, it's beyond what I can understand. But we are not subject to our minds, our thoughts, and our feelings. Those are subject to us. That's why heart, will, and spirit is at the very core. It's because we tell our thoughts what to do. We tell our feelings what to do. And if you're like, Chad, I struggle with that. I will tell you, me too. Look, we're all being formed. And if you struggle with anxiety like I do, or if you've struggled with depression or whatever in your mind, maybe it's addiction in your body, but those come from the mind, really, right? You have the idea first. If you, Chad, yes, David. We have the image of God. That's a great point. A deer will do that's nothing but eat Linda's food. David's saying that we're not subject to our bodies and our minds like, like animals are. That's the big difference. <laughs> she, the deer is going to eat what the deer is going to eat. That's true. But we in Christ have power to, to not do what our base desires want to do. Exactly. And so it's not just our minds. It's also our bodies, you know. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the, he says, but the body is weak. Spirit, body, right? Same dynamic. Jesus thought 
in those terms. So you should give up, Peter, and never try again. I think it was actually more a comment on, hey, but my flesh, which is the same as yours, by the way, has been formed, and so I'm going to go keep praying. It's not that Peter had weak flesh and Jesus didn't. It was Peter's was unformed because he was a knucklehead and young and hadn't been trained. I think the point that Jesus was making was, was like, hey, this is how things work. You might want things, but when your body isn't ready for them, if the pathology in your mind has not been formed by a consistent working of God's will into your will, you need to be formed. You need to be trained. It's called spiritual formation, and it takes time. Think about everything else you do in life. Why is the spiritual walk so different? You know, think about that. We, when we talk about, like, learning the violin, for example, or becoming proficient at baseball, or learning a new software, or, you know, learning how to code. What do you think? Those are just downloaded into you, and all of a sudden you've got it? No, we all know that the 10,000-hour rule is just real. It takes about five years full-time to become proficient at something when you work at it every week. I mean, then you get muscle memory. Muscle memory is really just your brain has a new pathology so that it's used to your body and your mind coordinating in a certain way. Let me just say this, and this might blow your mind. It's the same with spiritual formation. We don't exclude our mind and our body from the formation process. In fact, that's the very thing God uses to form us. Because, like I've been saying, God changes us from the inside out. But it is true that the outside forms us. That's why we guard our minds and our hearts. That's why we're protective over what we watch. It's because that changes it. We're, we should be cautious about friendship. Because that forms us. It goes both ways. And so as we exert our will by the overtures of God's grace, God forms our actual bodies and minds in real, detectable ways. That's how it works. So allow God to do some of that deep work that you allow him to do when you go to your job, when you went to school, when you're training for a marathon and you need to pace yourself. Like, those things are so totally true for spiritual formation. And I just want to, like, encourage you with that because maybe you've been like, well, God does it in his spiritual formation. So we're almost at a disadvantage to, to think about it in those terms only. You could just call it formation. <laughs> because God's forming our whole lives. Um, and so I want to read this from, from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. He says something that's really interesting about our bodies. So in letter four of the Screwtape Letters, which is um, basically like, you know, it's fictional about an older demon training a younger demon. And he, he basically talks about how to trick people in prayer. So this is really interesting. He says, one of their poets, Coleridge, has recently 
recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. In other words, this spiritual prayer. He says that's exactly the sort of prayer we want. And since it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy service, God's service, clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. At the very least, they can be persuaded that bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and that whatever their bodies do affects their soul. We are not mastered by our bodies, but our bodies, if we allow them to, can master us. I think of that often when I pray, because I'm tempted to believe, oh, I don't need to kneel to pray. I do, though. (laughs) I don't understand why, but it really helps me to pray when I kneel. And I think it's because I believed for a long time that my body didn't matter. But in Christ, according to the scripture, our bodies do really matter. And as we're formed, it's just real. The dialectic goes both ways between spirit and body. In fact, Willard says in the Spirit of the Disciplines, the locus or depository of the necessary power for spiritual formation is the human body. This explains in theological terms why we have a body at all. That body is our primary area of power, freedom, and therefore responsibility. Allow God to change and form your body as part of your spiritual formation journey. I think it's actually significant. I want to end with this. And this is, again, from another Willard book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, because I think that this is really important about making plans and your intentions about spiritual formation. So this is a quote. Stick with me, and we'll end with this. Willard says about the intention part of them, vision, intention, and means. He says this, If one day I assure my Christian friends that I intend to quit sinning, and arrive at a stage where I can perfectly follow Jesus Christ, they will most likely be scandalized and even threatened, or at least very puzzled. Who do you think you are? They would probably say. Or they might think, what is he really up to? But if, on the other hand, I state that I do not intend to stop sinning, or that I do not plan ever to follow my Lord in actuality, they will be equally upset. And for good reason. How can Jesus be my Lord if I don't plan to obey him? Would that really differ in substance and outcome from not having him as Lord at all? My Christian fellowship circle will allow me not to follow him and even not to plan to follow him, but they will not allow me to to say it. Yet I must do one or the other. Either I must intend to stop sinning and not intend... Either I must intend to stop sinning or not intend to stop. There is no third possibility. I must plan to follow Jesus fully or not plan to follow him. But how can I honestly do either? And does not planning to follow him and is not planning to follow him really different before God and humanity from planning not to follow him? Does not planning to follow him really differ from planning not to follow him? What he's saying is this. Your intention is either to follow Jesus fully 
or you're actually planning to not follow him. There's no middle ground. And the question is, are, do you intend to fully follow Jesus? Because if you do, then you'll make plans to do it. Otherwise, you're planning to fail. To not make plans is to make plans to fail, is what he's saying. It's really interesting. So when we talk about your spiritual formation plan, it's really engaging who you are and being real with how things work. You, you need a plan just like you need a retirement plan and you need uh, you know, a plan for your weekend. I'm going to Chattanooga today and it'll be a little interesting because we don't have a great plan yet, but we, we know where we're going to stay. You know? There's things that you should care far less about that you have a, a better plan than your spiritual formation plan which is perhaps one of the most important things that you could do. So this week, as you finish your rule of life, and please, please do that for your sake. As you finish that, seek God with all your heart. As you name your primary desire and your primary barriers, surface level and deep, really submit yourself to these practices. Because if you can start doing these kinds of things, you're on your way to a plan that's going to, by the grace of God, transform your life. Um, and I'm really excited about journeying with you. Um, we, we didn't talk about their part, but let me just say one thing. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul says, We proclaim him, admonish, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. As we think about our journey, let's think about the journey of those around us. He says this. He wants to present everyone perfect that is complete in Christ. And he says, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which works so powerfully in me. Struggling with all his energy. That's it right there. That's what we do with God's part and our part is also what we do and we pour into other people. And their part is the same as our part, but we do it all together. And so um, that's all we've got for today. Thank you guys so much for coming, and we'll see you next week.